Hi, I'm James Locke, Director of Legislative Affairs, and you're listening to the U.S. Chamber of Commerce Institute for Legal Reform's Cause for Action podcast. On today's episode, I'm joined by Jordan Credshaw, Senior Vice President at the U.S. Chamber's Technology Engagement Center, or CTEC for short. Jordan directly manages the Chamber's Privacy Working Group, which is comprised of nearly 300 companies and trade associations. The Privacy Working Group has worked closely with businesses of all shapes and sizes to develop model privacy legislation that carefully balances industry needs and government priorities. Today, we will be talking about the Chamber's data privacy program, focusing primarily on why federal and state privacy legislation should not contain private rights of action, why federal data privacy legislation could contain strong preemption provisions, and why it is important to incentivize compliance through the inclusion of safe harbor provisions and notice and cure periods. Thanks for joining us today, Jordan. James, thanks for having me. Yeah, excellent. Glad to, to finally get you on Cause for Action. So let's quickly first start by explaining what a private right of action does and particularly how it interacts in the data privacy context. Private rights of actions essentially allow consumers to sue businesses to vindicate privacy rights that have allegedly been violated. When it comes to privacy, ILR's research has shown that private rights of action are not the best enforcement mechanism to protect consumer privacy. Can you go on a little bit more about this? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things we have to be concerned about with, with things like private rights of action is that they actually don't enhance consumer privacy. Uh, for example, um, many of the cases that are brought under private rights of action really are targeted uh, at going after companies that have deep pockets uh, and are really uh, gone after because the trial bar is looking for its next payday. And um, there really isn't the incentive on the part of the trial bar to engage in collaborative compliance. It's more combative uh, compliance um, as opposed to uh, if you had a government agency like the FTC or a state attorney general uh, who has the incentive to go after the truly bad actors. Uh, in this case, um, you see a lot of examples where uh, plaintiff's attorneys will just throw spaghetti at the wall and see what sticks. And I think that's one of the concerns that we see uh, with with this type of of enforcement mechanism. Um, it also imposes high costs on businesses as well. Um, in addition to compliance, uh, companies are then going to have to bear legal and litigation costs. Those costs get passed down to the consumer. Um, and and also, you know, I think one of the other areas too we get a lot of uh, problems here is that the the Penalty amounts and the, and the settlement amounts are not proportionate as well to the alleged harms. In a lot of cases, as we've seen under the biometric uh, privacy law in Illinois, BIPA, uh, we've seen that uh, there are mere statutory violations that trigger private rights of action. Uh, and these statutory violations don't necessarily require harm. And, and I think that's a major problem as you know, so we're talking a little bit about uh, uh, going after bad actors versus going after deep pockets. Uh, this kind of law really incentivizes the trial bar to go after uh, those that they think they can get a payday from and not really seek to prioritize uh, redress for actual harm uh, necessarily that happens. Um, and, and the other area too is, is private rights of action deter innovation. Um, when you have companies that are on the hook potentially legally uh, for violating standards that are vague and, un, and, and in many cases unknown, uh, companies are going to err on the side of not getting sued. And, and so what they're going to do is they're going to pull products out of particular states. For example, we've seen in states like Illinois and Texas, uh, where there are biometric bills uh, that went into law uh, with private rights of action. 
uh, companies pulled out uh, services for, for citizens in those states. So uh, it really is important from, uh, you know, many perspectives here to ensure that we have uh, collaborative compliance as opposed to combative compliance. And we also have, uh, you know, enforcement going after really bad actors as opposed to uh, going after deep pockets. Yeah, I mean, these are all excellent points. And, and as you mentioned, we see some argue that PRAs are the most appropriate remedy because they allow these consumers to seek legal remedies they otherwise wouldn't have. But the reality is, as you mentioned, that these privacy laws are so complex and highly technical that the real pros, you know, the regulators, like you mentioned, the FTC in the federal context and the state AGs are the best situated to address this. So then what if any our solutions are out there and you know, how should we be enforcing these? Well, I think I think you really are on to the, the main problem is that private rights of action are not the best way of ensuring uh, consumer privacy is protected. Uh, but we can tell you a few examples and, and actually uh, nine states that have gone through with uh, privacy legislation into law uh, agree uh, there should not be a private right of action uh, for uh, for privacy violations. Um, Expert government actors, um, whether you're talking about in, on the federal side, the Federal Trade Commission uh, with guardrails uh, should uh, enforce because it has the expertise and it's been enforcing privacy for decades. Um, state AGs have experience in consumer protection law uh, and, and they're really primed and the most um, prepared to uh, go after bad actors when it comes to privacy uh, violations. Um, and also, it really does strike the right balance because it protects consumers, it facilitates growth, and, and ultimately it leaves uh, consumers and industry better off when they're collaborating on how to get to protecting consumers as opposed to combating each other in court. Yeah, I, I think that all rings very true, uh, particularly from ILR's perspective. You know, we, we really laser focused on the enforcement side of things. And that kind of brings me to my next question. So in addition to keeping these private rights of action out of privacy legislation, it's also important to have other protections baked in there for both consumers and the businesses. Um, so let's start with safe harbors. Can you talk a little bit about these, explain to our audience how they work and why they should be included in privacy legislation? Yeah, happy to. A safe harbor really is when you have a law that has uh, regulations about a, a certain type of conduct, uh, what it will do is it will provide for a set of safe harbor programs that will prevent company from being enforced against if it's meeting certain processes or certain um, substantive requirements uh, that are equivalent to what the government considers to be following the law. So, uh, for example, um, uh, the Children's Online Privacy Protection Act, COPPA, uh, was enacted by Congress, uh, delegated authority to the FTC. Um, to uh, regulate and enforce uh, children's online privacy for those under 13. But it also has a safe harbor provision. And what that provision enables is codes of conduct and, um, and private groups uh, applying to the FTC to set up safe harbor programs. And if those private groups find that uh, companies in compliance and that company is in compliance with the law. Um, and once again, that all comes back to that issue of collaborative compliance, where uh, you have companies that are working to do the right thing um, and also having uh, the ability to have some flexibility uh, in how they um, comply with the privacy law. Uh, but but also, um, you know, a couple of other examples, too. Um, it, you know, we also have seen some states that actually have examples of this. Uh, for example, 
um, uh, Tennessee just passed into law privacy legislation. And while it's not a full safe harbor, um, what it is is an affirmative defense. So if, for example, a company is following the NIST privacy framework, which was established just a few years ago, it's a voluntary framework, uh, they would be deemed in compliance or they could use as a defense that they're using that to say that they're following the law. Uh, and so this really does uh, weed out bad actors um, from those who are really trying in earnest to ensure that they're complying with, with the requirements they have. Yeah, I mean, absolutely true about Tennessee. And um, I guess the, really the bottom line here is that well-crafted safe harbor provisions benefit all stakeholders, right? Businesses are better equipped to comply with these laws and the security obligations in the you know data breach context, but consumers also received enhanced protections because of more widespread compliance. When you have companies kind of trying to do the right thing, there's a downstream effect that really benefits the consumer as well. Let's take a moment to talk a little bit about notice and cure periods. Uh, they're an excellent tool, as you know, for legislators to use to protect businesses from predatory litigation. Can you dive a little bit deeper into why these provisions are important in the data privacy context? Well, notice secure is just another example of collaborative compliance. Uh, and, and what it does is another example of weeding out those who are truly bad actors from companies that are acting in good faith and trying to get it right. Uh, and so what happens in this context, uh, a, a complaint will be made uh, to a company that, uh, for example, say a state law says uh, a consumer has the right to have data about them be deleted. Um, and that has not happened. Uh, that a consumer, once they've made that request and that hasn't happened, they go to the company uh, and uh, make a complaint. The company then has 30 days to really fix uh, that activity before um, the heavy hand of government kind of comes down uh, to get penalties and and go after them in court. Uh, and so, so this really does separate companies that are really trying to do it right, who may have just made technical violations, for example, of a statute. Um, as opposed to uh, ones who actually are nefariously going out and misusing data. So it's really important that, um, it, it, particularly in privacy, where I mentioned earlier, sometimes there's not always harm uh, related to a violation, uh, that, that there be some flexibility. And that and the notice secure period really does help there. Yeah, I, I totally agree on, on, on all fronts. And we would be remiss if we didn't really discuss right now the other elephant in the room, which is preemption in a federal bill. So can you talk about the chamber's position on federal preemption and, you know, why it's so important in the privacy context? Yeah, I'd be happy to do so. Um, for example, um, uh, we are incredibly concerned about a 50 state patchwork of laws that are potentially conflicting. Uh, and that would um, leave companies in a position where they have to make a decision of, should I comply with this state's law versus another state's? Um, this in particular uh, negatively impacts small businesses. Uh, they don't have the compliance offices. They don't have the legal counsel that larger companies have. And having to navigate a 50-state patchwork uh, puts them at a unique disadvantage. For example, uh, we actually did a survey of small businesses last year, and we found 80% said accessing tech platforms and digital tools helps them compete with larger companies. That same number said limiting access to data would harm their operations. And if you have a 50-state patchwork, that's going to limit the amount of data that small businesses are willing to use. Uh, and so that's why it's critically important that we get one single national standard that applies across the board. Uh, you know, Europe actually has a standard. It's called GDPR. China even has its own single national privacy law. 
Uh, and it just doesn't make sense for there to be a 50 state approach. Here's an example of what could happen. Um, you may have one state that says uh, you can't collect sensitive data as a company. Another state may say you need sensitive data to run impact assessments on things like artificial intelligence. And so what's a company to do in that, that case? Uh, and so uh, that's a significant concern. And, and that's why it's so critical that Congress pass a strongly preemptive federal privacy bill that creates one standard. And I'll even take this back to private rights of action a little bit. Um, one of the concerns with private rights of action is not only are you going to deal with a 50 state patchwork, uh, but you're going to get district to district interpretations of privacy law. So that's uh, going to compound the problems with just the 50 state regulations that are put in place. If you start having uh, different levels of, of, of superior courts and appellate courts and states and on the federal side, uh, making calls about what a privacy law means. So that's why it's important that we need a single national standard, but also uh, a privacy enforcement regime that only has one single federal regulator uh, and also state AGs. Yeah, it totally makes sense to, you know, limit the number of folks active in this space because, you know, we don't need to further balkanize the already fragmented patchwork. It just makes compliance so much harder and, and frankly, prices out a lot of the small to medium sized firms that would like to compete with the you know, the big data folks that have robust, you know, compliance apparatuses already at their disposal. So, you know, we've covered a lot of ground here today, but I just in kind of in closing wanted to hear your perspective on some other developments that you see in the privacy space, you know, at the FTC level, maybe how these differing uh, privacy laws that are emerging in the States, how they interact, anything else that you wanted to cover here? Yeah, I, there's a lot going on here. And I think you touched on the Federal Trade Commission. And, and actually, a few months ago, they released an advance notice of proposed rulemaking uh, in what they're deeming their commercial surveillance rulemaking, which is a um, pejorative, really, for a privacy, uh, security, and uh, algorithmic rulemaking, uh, in which they ask uh, 91 questions, uh, effectively asking, should they do an economy-wide regulation on data privacy? Um, and... This is important uh, for two reasons. One, this would add to a state patchwork. Uh, the FTC does not have preemptive authority unless Congress gives it to them. They don't have it in this case. Uh, so that would actually make compliance harder, especially now that we'll have at least 10 states with privacy laws at the end of this year uh, and a potential new FTC rule. The other piece is a concern about um, you know, whether or not uh, the FTC has the authority to do this in the first place. Um, just recently, the Supreme Court uh, ruled in West Virginia versus EPA in, in questions of uh, cases where the government gets into economically or politically significant rules, they need a clear authorization from Congress to do so. Uh, and, and in fact, we've even heard from Lena Khan, the chair of the FTC herself, that if Congress does move with data privacy legislation, uh, then they will change what they do. That's a clear signal that they know that they don't have explicit authorization to do a comprehensive FTC privacy rule uh, at this time. Um, and so uh, we also now, too, are dealing with uh, other states and federal proposals that have uh, pretty broad uh, and vague um, uh, requirements as well. And I think that's an area, too, where we need to be concerned if a private right of action uh, is included, uh, because as I mentioned before, uh, plaintiff's attorneys are going to throw every theory under a law that they can uh, to ensure that they get maximum payday. 
Uh, and so, um, you know, these uh, proposals that we see out here that are including private rights of action, it's incredibly important uh, that, that, that the rules are narrowly tailored. Um, but uh, we would prefer no private right of action in the first place, but but that's just another reason why that's a concern. But but also too, I think we are seeing an interesting patchwork emerging in states. Um, we are seeing uh, in what we would describe as purple and red states, um, uh, passage of legislation that looks like Virginia's privacy law. It has very clear uh, requirements, like a right to delete, a right to opt out of targeted advertising, uh, automated profiling, uh, sales of data, right to correct, et cetera. Uh, but the key in all these state bills is there is no private right. Um, only two that I would describe as somewhat comprehensive have any form of private right of action. Uh, one is the California privacy law, but that's very limited to breach, not privacy violations. Uh, but the one I would say that the companies should be on watch for is uh, the recently passed bill uh, that was Slatter's bill. It was the My, My Health, My Data Act uh, that came out of Washington State. Um, and what this bill does, which it started as an abortion rights and uh, gender affirming care privacy uh, bill, morphed into a bill that basically would regulate any kind of data that you could link or is linkable uh, to a, a health condition. And um, that could be anything from a tennis shoe, uh, a health app, uh, uh, whether or not you get gluten-free food on your loyalty program at, uh, at, at a grocery store. Uh, and that would subject companies, it's an opt-in bill uh, that goes into effect next year to private rights of action. Uh, so uh, that is a state that everyone who does business in Washington State really needs to pay attention to as it goes online. Um, and then finally, the other big issue uh, that we're seeing at, at the Chamber Technology Engagement Center uh, is the issue of artificial intelligence. Um, we are seeing uh, a, a new patchwork beginning to emerge in states about AI. Uh, California looked at employment regulations. New York City has its own uh, AI uh, discrimination um, uh, law on the books. Um, City of D.C. Uh, was also considering an AI regulation. Uh, that would have subjected companies that had uh, over 25,000 customers to private rights of action. Uh, and, and so it's also critically important that we don't have a patchwork emerge in the states. Uh, we're urging uh, Congress um, to uh, uh, think about AI regulation smartly. Um, and in fact, just recently, the chamber released its own AI commission report uh, in March, uh, that commission was led by a bipartisan group of, of former Congressman John Delaney and Mike Ferguson. Uh, and that commission uh, recommends to Congress that where agencies currently have their authority, they should use it to regulate artificial intelligence. But at the same time, there should be a risk-based approach if Congress finds it's appropriate and, and necessary to create new regulations. So uh, a lot going on uh, in this space, but but once again, it comes back to we need one clear national standard, and we need collaborative and not competitive compliance. Yeah, thank you so much, Jordan, for joining us. We certainly covered a lot of ground. Be sure to subscribe to Cause for Action everywhere you listen to podcasts. See you next time.